start. Welcome to this podcast on mini-grids in Africa, which is part of this year's Africa Week at Field Fisher. I'm Ryan Muskant and I'm an associate in Field Fisher's engineering projects and construction team. I'm very pleased to welcome today Nicholas Wrigley, who is the chairman, CEO and founder of Winch Energy. Winch Energy is a global off-grid renewable energy developer, operator and technology integrator. Its management team has accumulated experience of over 3,500 megawatts of renewable energy projects globally. And to date, it has installed off-grid projects in Mauritania, Sierra Leone, Benin and Uganda. Nick, welcome and thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you, Ryan, and good morning. Good morning. Um, Nick, for those that don't know, how would you best describe what a mini-grid is and how it works? So um, a mini-grid is a self-standing um, electricity generation unit. It's typically, or increasingly typically, um, uh, solar-driven, so solar panels, batteries, um, and typically also with some diesel backup, where the diesel represents probably not more than 20% of the total power generated. So it, it's very much in the re renewables camp. Um, attached to that is a what we would call in the, in the jargon a distribution business, that's poles and wires, which go out from the unit to customers' houses, customers' petrol stations, customers' bars, restaurants, etc. Um, so it's quite a, a varied sort of customer base from that standpoint. Um, there's an increasing use, as you probably know, uh, Ryan, of um, you know, of, of self-standing independent uh, power generation. Uh, yeah. It's not just to um, you know multiple customers, and I think that's the the real true definition of mini grid is where you have multiple customers connected to the same system. Uh, you'll also find um, industrial use systems, which typically are systems connected to one industrial or commercial customer. I mean, are, are there any limitations to the system? It, would it provide reliable and you know, secure electricity supply for industrial usage? So a couple of years ago, I probably would have said yes, because uh, there the were limitations because really of the high cost of solar and, um, and batteries. Today, however, um, increasing you know, big industrial customers are looking at what we call hybrid systems, which again, uh, just to repeat myself, are, are largely based on solar production with batteries with some diesel backup. Uh, there's no limitation today. You know, we we manufacture um, and install systems of four megawatts plus uh, at the moment. So, and that's only likely to grow. And, and to get a sense of how many connections are possible with your units, if we were to say take your smallest 35 kilowatt unit, how many customer connections could that reliably serve? So where, I mean, the, the, the maths you need to do is to really divide the amount of power available and figure out, you know, what's the minimum amount of power each of your customers need. So typically on, on a system like that, it's anything between 60 and 100 customers. And some customers can be on, you know, a higher demand um, meters than others. So some may just run, uh, you know, lighting, uh, fan heaters, phone recharges, that sort of stuff. Others may be running, you know, coffee machines, fridges, uh, etc. So it very much depends on the customer. Between between 60 and 100 customers on a 35 kilowatt system. Okay, but obviously you can size your system to demand and also scale the units with demand. 
No, absolutely. Look, the you know the, the systems are designed to be scalable, and that's a number of reasons. Cost, you know, very big reason. Um, logistics, another reason. Transportation issues, that sort of stuff. Uh, we, you know, we've got at the moment in places like um, Mauritania, we have a, a 90 kilowatt system serving 100 customers. Um, we have uh, Uganda, 70 kilowatt systems, 110 kilowatt systems. So there's no real sort of constraint in terms of number of sites. It really is about feeding you know, a number of customers in a given location. Yeah. Well, Nick, I'm interested to know, I mean, you were previously a partner at Clifford Chance. What prompted you to leave and start the mini-grid business? And at what point did you consider mini-grids as a viable business proposition? So I'll, I'll take you back a little a little while. So I, I, I had a, um, a great career as a, as a lawyer. I was in Clifford Chance for 21 years. I was a partner for 12. And I, I actually joined a client, which is not untypical in, in the legal profession. And the client I joined... Uh, is still today one of the largest uh, wind farm developers in the world. And I'd assisted them on uh, some large projects they were doing in Italy at the time, and they asked me to join them. And and that and yeah, that was in 2006. I never looked back. I went into the solar business on my own as a sort of as an aside, and it very rapidly became you know my principal business through Winch. Um, I I left the the wind business in fact last year. So after some 12, 13 years, um, and really I'm now solely focused on, on Winch. Winch started off as a traditional solar developer, on-grid solar developer, Italy, UK, France principally. Um, when we got to the end of that, I guess, eight-year cycle, we started looking at opportunities in Africa, as a lot of people did at the time. This is sort of five, six years ago. We rapidly came to the conclusion that but apart from South Africa, which was very crowded out, and other possible markets in, in, in North Africa, Morocco, Tunisia, again, which were very crowded out by you know, substantially larger competitors, that actually the market, which was largely untapped at the time and frankly remains so today, was all those um, hundreds of millions of people sitting off the grid, literally just outside the, the capital cities of many of these African sub-Saharan nations. And we felt that it was a just a massive untapped opportunity. What we very rapidly figured out was that wasn't actually any appropriate technology for um, those some of those locations. Not that solar panels didn't exist or batteries weren't around. It's just that no well, no one had really put them together in a an, in, in a in a containerized solution. Which, which helps you really get through all the, the, the biggest hurdles of, of this business, which is logistics, transportation, cranes, um, ease of installation, ease of transporting all the ancillary equipment, et cetera. So that's why we started making our own generation systems, which is obviously core to our business today. You know, one thing I guess to, to take note on is, is the alternative in terms of grid expansion. So it's, it's not actually technically or commercially viable um, in most instances to extend the grid. And um, therefore, from what I see, mini grids uh, represent the most commercially and technically viable option to service um, these off-grid communities, certainly in the short to medium term, um, and bridge that demand and supply gap for electricity. 
So no, this is a good point, and it's one of the biggest challenges we really faced five years ago when we started this business was getting a a transparent view with with African governments in particular as to the true cost of their grid network and you know therefore the expansion of that network. And you know I'm sure you're 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 fully aware of this, but the, the, one of the issues with the the power business generally is that it, it is subsidized, it will continue to be subsidized whether it's on or off grid, except the on-grid subsidies really lack transparency. And that's largely historical factors like, and in particular in Africa, you know, um, a lot of the hydro dams were built by, you know, European money, US money, Canadian money. Um, and of course, you know, when, when you're looking at what you, you think the cost of that hydro is, you know, a lot of people forget that they never actually paid for the hardware. So, it's only really, it's taken a couple of years really to get people to really think through the cost implications of expanding the grid compared to mini grids. And it's now really generally accepted that you know, beyond a certain kilometer distance from the existing grid, it doesn't make any sense financially or indeed logistically to do anything except a mini grid. That's probably between five and 10 kilometers from, from, from the national grid. Yeah. And then there's also the transmission losses that, that can be up to 30%, depending on how long the transmission infrastructure is from, from the central generation to the, to the off-grid communities. Yeah, there's, all, there's, all, there's also, I mean, there's two additional features. There's, you know, if you extend the grid, that means you have more customers. That means you have to have more power generation somewhere along the grid. You know, and that, and that is, is challenging in, in most environments. And the second point is that a grid requires maintenance and, you know, particularly close to the equator where you have, you know, massive, um, you know, vegetation growth. You know, a lot of the grids which have been built, you know, are actually fell into disuse, are currently in disuse. Cameroon is a very good example, simply because the, the national grid operator can't keep up with, you know, with vegetation growing, you know, so fast that it actually lifts the cables off, off the pylons. And that's a very, very big issue in, in a lot of these countries. You know, another reason not to go the grid extension route. Yes, uh, Nick, you spoke before about the, the grants and subsidies to the energy industry generally. How are mini grid projects typically funded? So, I mean, there's really two principal ways that governments are looking to fund them today. I think that, and, and we're involved involved in both those funding schemes. So the first, um, the, the the first one is is going the traditional IPP route, independent power producer route. That's largely encouraged by the donor organisations who are putting up the grant money, the World Bank, the African Development Bank, DFID, GIZ of Germany. Um, and that really involves giving operators light winch, you know, 20 year concessions to to operate and sell the power to to the end customer. Um, those projects typically today have capital grants. So those are grants which are given at the beginning of the process. They're not based on the power production as typically you'd see in, you know, in the in the North Atlantic in, in, in developed economies. Um, the percentages are quite high, and again, it depends on the target price to the retail customer. Uh, countries have different policies, so I can give you, because it's all public knowledge, you know, the policy in Uganda, for example, where we operate uh, 25 sites, actually 30 sites, 
uh, is to have a low tariff to the customer. Uh, that's about $29, so pretty close to the national grid price. So whether you're on or off grid, you're more or less paying the same amount of money. And, and compared to diesel generation, which is typically the alternative for these off-grid communities? It's diesel, you know, in these sorts of communities is probably in the high 60s, early 70s, something like that. Okay, so uh, a massive saving there. To a dollar, depending again, you know, who, who the, who's providing the power. Um, the uh, and, and but the subsidies on on that particular transaction are around seventy uh, percent of the capital cost, right? Um, other policies, uh, Sierra Leone, for example, where the the tariff is much much higher, seventy five dollar cents a kilowatt hour. Um, again, because the subsidies are, are are much lower. Okay, so there's not really an established view, I guess, across um, different developing nations as to what the, what the right way to go is. Um, you know, we don't really have a view. Um, we just need to be able to make you know sensible returns for our investors. Sure. Um, given the the sort of very fast decline in the cost of of solar PV and batteries, how long do you think it will be? Um, that the mini grid sector will be reliant on grants and subsidies. I think it's an interesting question, and it's difficult to give a precise answer. I think if you, if you, you know, if you, if you, if you take examples on grid, um, what you'll see is for solar, for example, is in 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 many countries, including the UK. Which you know now now solar has been around the UK pretty much for the last twenty years. The amount of subsidies you know granted, I, th I think I saw some numbers. Two thousand two thousand sixteen was around twenty six billion pounds, and subsidies you know are still in place in the UK. And every time subsidies are removed, the the amount of new installations just collapses, and, and vice versa. Um, I think there's there's two areas where we we will be improving on. We are improving on. Number one is um, obviously, the cost of the technology, the cost of the technology is coming down. Um, the, the challenge with mini grids is not so much, or it's not just the technology, it's the cost of logistics. Transportation is a very, very expensive business to these remote locations um, and shows no sign of, of coming down. Um, the other area where you know, we're going to get much better at is, is development, is, is the, the actual cost of developing these projects. Not untypically, um, the projects have de been developed from outside the countries in which the projects are being built. Yeah, that was the case in the early years of, of solar and wind. Now you know, we have in-country teams which do the development, obviously, much more efficiently and, and, and much cheaper in the countries in which we're operating. So those are two areas which will very substantially reduce the need for, for subsidies. Um, are we ever going to see a day without subsidies? I think it depends on the resource. Uh, you know, in, in some places we get much better solar and wind resource than others. And, and those places will, will need less subsidy. Uh, Mauritania, for example, which is the, the, you know, the Sahara gets 333 days a year of sun. Um, less need for subsidies than maybe, um, you know, Equatorial Guinea, which, you know, has four rainy seasons. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um... I, mean, I, I see a number of, of off-grid tenders that are springing up across Africa, and there's certainly good support from international finance institutions. 
how do you see the current landscape for the mini grid sector in Africa? I think the look the tenders you're you're seeing are mostly for IPP projects, right? So where the private sector comes in, you know, owns and operates the the equipment on the basis of long-term concessions, typically 20 years. I think that's a really tough business right now. I think the um, in particular the, the donor organisations, which are the large you know, DFI organisations, still haven't got it right. Um, they you know, it's 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 a very challenging business compared to on grid, which is it's often erroneously compared to. You have a number of additional risks, which you know today are quite difficult to deal with um, um, from a financial standpoint. One is demand risk, so you know your customers going to buy all the power you produce. Yeah, you don't have uh, the benefit of a take or pay structure. There's no take or pay structure exactly. The second one, quite frankly, is currency risk. You know your you're, you're buying and installing in dollars or euros typically, and you're selling ultimately in the local currency. And you know, 20 year swaps today don't exist. Even if they did, they would be, you know, they would be uh, unaffordable in the context of uh, these projects. So aside from um, grants and subsidies and um, you know, potentially participating in, in various uh, tender initiatives, if appropriate. What, what does Winch look for in potential new markets? So we, we have a, um, a, a cash sales business as well. Okay, so we will we we design and manufacture generation equipment and distribution equipment, which of course we use on our own sites when, when we're doing IPP projects. But we will also use export credit uh, places like Ethiopia, uh, Benin, uh, Senegal, Uganda, you know, we've been quite successful in promoting a large um, ca cash sales of deals. Um, what, what we're looking for is countries where we can get to critical mass. You'll hear that, that word a number of times if you'd ask me the question again. Critical mass is absolutely key. There's no point being in any new country, whether it's Africa or elsewhere, unless you can achieve Number one, uh, local management team is absolutely key um, in, in terms of, of efficiency and cost. And for that, you need numbers of locations. So rule of thumb, uh, if you're looking at the mini grid business, you need, we think we, we need at least 100 locations to justify um, you know, going into a new, a new country. Doesn't have to be achieved in one deal, but you have to be able to see that within a 24 month horizon, you can get to that sort of critical mass. Yeah, and that'll also get you towards a, the sort of ticket size that might be more attractive to commercial banks uh, to avoid over-reliance on concessional lending by DFIs. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I think the we need a couple of years of data coming, coming off the projects to really um, you know, start attracting the commercial banking sector. Which, as you know, is particularly weak, certainly in, in, in the markets in which we're operating in, in, in Africa. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of traction in the sector, uh, according to research on behalf of the World Bank in 2019, there's around 1,500 mini grids that are currently installed in Africa and a further 4,000 that are planned. Um, what would you say are the, the key social, economic, and environmental attributes of, of solar hybrid mini grids? Look, I think it's really more about bringing electricity to areas which today are not electrified. There's a, there's, a, there's a couple of things you need to know, right? Number one is 
yes, the, these are some of the poorest populations on the planet, but they do spend a disproportionately high percentage of their meagre revenues on energy related products, right? So that's today, that's you know, charcoal for cooking, kerosene for lighting, uh, dry batteries for torches, um, and, you know, unaffordable mobile phone recharges from, from resellers. Uh, so it's not that, that, that you're asking people to spend money on electricity when they don't already do so. They do so, but, but not on, in a clean and affordable way. What's absolutely clear is that bringing electricity and as we do communication, we, we always have a, a Wi-Fi bundle which can be accessed by, by our customers, um, immediately promotes prosperity. Uh, the, the particular town that gets electrified you know, attracts commerce, uh, people with money will, and, and products to be sold will come to the location, um, to, you know, which becomes a marketplace effectively. And very, very rapidly, you see economic activity developing. Yeah, I mean, just picking up on, on one of the points you just said, um, and absolutely correct. If we look at um, Benin, for example, which is split into 12 departments, the households in the department with the lowest electrification rate actually has the highest monthly energy expense. Um, so it just goes to show you that, that, that as you said, these off-grid communities and, and the villagers there are actually paying a disproportionately high cost for their energy usage. Uh, leaving aside the environmental implications of, of using diesel generation or, or safety risks of using kerosene lamps, etc. Yeah, I mean, you know, on, on average, they will spend around 25% less for obviously for clean, reliable power with us than they would be spending on the bundle of energy related products that they would be buying previously. So, you know, they've got more disposable income. Um, and again, you know, that in itself will generate more prosperity. Sure, um, absolutely. Uh, a couple of technical technical questions, if I may. Um, how is the performance of the of the remote power units monitored, including in particular balancing the solar and the battery generation? So it's really achieved in in, in two ways. We have remote um, contact um, and monitoring with all our equipment. You know, typically it will be through a 2G or 3G router. If, if neither of those are available, it'll be a satellite link, you know, a, a cheap um, satellite link effectively. So we, we know in real time, you know, what's happening on all, the, all our equipment. That's fed into something called a, a winch dashboard. That's basically a, um, a cloud-based uh, product which we have, which is essentially enables you to access both the technical data on a real-time basis of the of the equipment, and it enables you to to monitor again on a real-time basis sales and consumption of energy to directly to your customers. So that's something which in, in today's technical world is not only possible but it's also affordable, and it's made you know it's made it's helped to make mini grids more of a reality because you can do that. We can also remote fix most of the issues which the generation units may have locally. Uh, again, another huge uh, cost-saving item. Um, in terms of balancing the the power output, so we've got you know t t two distinct 
hybrid uh, pieces of equipment out of, out there. We've got the the solar and batteries, and the solar and batteries. You know, clearly the limitation there is um, if you're good at your job and and stimulate enough demand, you'll typically run out of power. Um, you know, during prolonged rainy days. Okay, so there's only so much storage in the batteries, and you'll run out of power. So there is a controller system on all the systems which provides for priority loads. So when the system detects that it's starting to run out of power, uh, it's also got built into it a, a weather forecast. It'll start basically selecting uh, priority customers. So for example, it'll turn off the street lights. It will. It might turn off the water pump if the if the water tower is full. It'll um, start turning off um, certain retail customers or providing with less available power. And the last people to get turned off, you know, will be the health center. Uh, the government offices and that sort of stuff. Yeah, so there are ways of doing that. Yeah. Now, it, in 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 the larger systems, we'll typically have a diesel backup, which will provide typically anything from six percent to twenty percent of the annual needs, depending on the size of the system. Yeah, that obviously has one hundred percent reliability, so you don't have issues of of load shedding. Um, and how easy would it be to actually connect um, these remote power units or mini grids essentially to the grid if and when the grid is extended? Yeah, look, it's pretty straightforward. Um, the machines are designed for, um, you know, pretty much plug and play uh, when the grids arrive, as, as, you, as you well know, in terms of the concessional arrangements we have. Yeah, there are provisions for um, indemnities to be paid to us as the owner operator in the event that the grid does arrive. Um, and those indemnities would cover, for example, any technical adjustments that need to be made to the equipment so that it could run on, on you know, in parallel with the grid. Yes, um, no, absolutely. Well, certainly uh, a viable option then for the future. Um, and as I said before, it's a, a short-term fix, at least while grid works are being carried out, um, and potentially also avoids countries uh, relying on imports of, of power. Nick, just to sort of bring this to a conclusion, from your experience installing mini-grids in Africa, what would you say are the main challenges the business has faced, and, and what would you say are the key takeaways for the future? So look, I, I, I guess the um, you know, some of the key challenges are um, it, this is a regulated business, right? So it, it inevitably, whether you're selling to a government, um, which is half of our business, or you're you're asking for a license to operate, again, it involves governments. I mean, develop, developing country governments are typically un, underfunded, undertrained. So um, yeah, that's a major challenge is getting. All the permits in place and all the licensing re requirements. It's a ma major challenge. It's a time challenge. You know what would take, you know, 12 months in any developed economy can take up to three or four years in um, developing countries, sim simply because of the lack of civil service infrastructure. <clears throat> so that's the first biggest challenge. Second biggest challenge: logistics. You know, this is some of this stuff is heavy equipment. You don't always find a big enough crane in a country, believe it or not. So sometimes you have to import or bring in, you know, heavy heavy equipment just just to install your power generation equipment. 
um, unmade roads, big challenge. Um, and, you know, frankly, a lot of this equipment being in very, very remote places and the ability to to service them and, and in particular deal with them when they break down, which they sometimes do, not often, but they sometimes do. So I, I, guess, I guess those are the major challenges. Other major challenge, you know, absence of domestic funding, big challenge. Um, and that's only got really worse in the in the five years we've been operating in Africa. You know, major international banks withdrawing, um, and and you know domestic banks not having the liquidity or frankly the skill base necessarily to to look at long term funding programs, which is what energy needs. You know they're very good, very good at leasing. You know a three to five year term on a motor vehicle. Um, for hundred thousand dollars, but they're not very good at looking at extending that over a fifteen to twenty year period. Sure. Well, hopefully that market will change as 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 the track record and and data collection um, becomes more uh, more prominent. And um, Nick, this is this has been honestly fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your insightful thoughts on mini grids. Um, we're very proud to support Winch Energy deliver its portfolio of mini grids across Africa. Um, and I'd also like to take this opportunity just to congratulate the Sierra Leone team again on, on being shortlisted for the International Environmental Impact Award by the British Expertise Awards 2020. Uh, mini grids have changed the face of off grid communities and changed people's lives for the better, whether it is growing a business charging a phone, powering a water pump, TV, fridge, or blender for baby food. There is no doubt that mini-grids are a key part of the electrification equation and the global goal of achieving universal access to electricity by 2030. Sub-Saharan Africa has the lowest electrification rate in the world. At the same time, it is blessed with an abundance of untapped renewable energy sources. Mini-grids represent the fastest and most technically viable option to electrify off-grid communities in the short to medium term. There's clear environmental, social and economic benefits, including a cheap energy supply compared to diesel. Um, thanks to the fast decline in the cost of PV panels and batteries and to substantial improvements on metering and software solutions, clean mini grids are technology mature, adaptable and ready to scale. In terms of a sector outlook, the International Energy Agency estimates that 140 million of the projected 315 million rural Africans who will gain access to electricity by 2040 will be served by mini grids. Hopefully, many of those will be using Winch Energy's pioneering remote power units. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, mate. <laughs>